Welcome to the Got Science Podcast. I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. Today's podcast is airing on Election Day, and here at Podcast Central, we're out voting, volunteering, and helping to safely get out the vote. So we're switching things up and starting off with the final installment of our four-part series on how rigorous science and a little detective work can provide evidence to make polluters pay. We'll then follow up with an episode we ran a while back about the trustworthiness of science. This is part four of our series on climate accountability brought to you by Katie Love. If you missed the first three, you can find them in episodes 93 through 95. To recap, we've learned that it's illegal for companies to lie about the harm their products cause. And despite that, fossil fuel companies spread lies for decades about climate change, which they knew was caused by burning their products. Last episode, Katie brought the science to show that we can now tie the effects of climate change to specific fossil fuel companies. And today, we're coming back around to justice. Here's Katie. Thanks, Colleen. So now that we know that climate change costs communities billions of dollars in damages, for example, after a destructive storm made worse or more likely by warming, and we know it costs billions more to cover preventative and adaptive measures, such as seawalls to prevent flooding, and we know it costs lives, like when people die during heat waves, And we know that the effects of climate change hurt communities of color and low-income communities the most. Is it fair that communities have to keep covering these costs? Is it fair that companies selling products that they know contribute to climate change have lied about the harm they've done? Is it fair that these companies have billions of dollars in outsized political influence, but have pinned the responsibility for climate change on us? Of course not. Unfortunately, we haven't been able to rely on fossil fuel companies or our government to do what's fair. Under these circumstances, what recourse is there for justice? And that's actually one idea, going through the justice system. That's why this summer, Connecticut, Delaware, and Minnesota joined about 20 other U.S. cities, counties, and states in filing climate change lawsuits against fossil fuel companies. Many of these cases seek to hold companies liable for damages caused by climate change impacts. Some of them allege that specific companies violated consumer protection and common laws by defrauding residents with false advertising and misrepresentation. Many of these lawsuits include details in their filings about how the impacts of climate change hit heaviest on those who can least afford it. For example, the city of Charleston, South Carolina, noted that people of color and those living in poverty are more vulnerable to extreme heat events, which are projected to increase in the decades ahead. The city of Hoboken, New Jersey, pointed to the inequitable impacts of Hurricane Sandy, which trapped residents living in low-income housing as the streets flooded around them. Delaware's filing mentions urban heat islands, which worsen the health impacts of extreme heat on communities of color and low-income communities. Climate lawsuits can be a means to advance racial and economic justice for those who are disproportionately affected. And they're not limited to the United States. Over the past five years, 
the Philippines Commission on Human Rights conducted an investigation into the responsibility of the world's biggest polluters for human rights violations resulting from climate change. The commission found that major fossil fuel companies could be found legally and morally liable for climate-related human rights harms to Filipinos, but has not yet released its final report. It's expected by the end of this year, and it could help inform other countries' consideration of corporate climate accountability. I mentioned a study by Yale University in the last episode. That study found that a majority of Americans surveyed in 2019 think that fossil fuel companies are at least partly responsible for climate change impacts and that they should pay for at least some of the damages to communities. Public opinion on this topic is shifting as the consequences of climate change become harder to ignore, and the science linking these impacts to specific companies develops. The lawsuits I described represent the beginning of a battle in courts worldwide over accountability and liability for climate change. In addition to cases that aim to hold corporations accountable for their contributions to climate change, climate litigation also targets governments at all levels, seeking to compel them to protect the rights of people, future generations, and the environment from disruptive climate change. I invite you to visit the UCS Science Hub for Climate Litigation to learn more about the science behind making polluters pay. It's on our site at act.ucsusa.org slash science dash hub. And stay tuned to our blog for updates on these legal cases. Thanks for joining me for this series. And now we're rewinding back to episode 70, which first aired on October 22nd, 2019. Science historian Dr. Naomi Oreskes made the case for why we can and should trust science. Naomi, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Nice to be here with you. I had the pleasure of reading an advanced copy of your book, and I found it super interesting and also really accessible to the non-scientist. I wanted to start a little bit with the history. So when I think of how modern science is practiced, for me, it conjures the idea of the scientific method, some set of principles or a system that scientists adhere to. And it's the primary way that we know science is trustworthy. So I found the first chapter in your book really fascinating because it takes us through the progression of science from the individual scientist where the reputation of the man of science was what made us trust the science to our current system, which is more collaborative. So can you give us a brief history of that transformation and how things unfolded? Sure. So I think most of us were raised with the vision of science that you just described, that there was this thing called the scientific method, singular, and that science was reliable by virtue of the fact that scientists used that method. But what we've learned over the past hundred years of history and philosophy of science and also sociology of science, anthropology of science, is that that picture is incorrect. It's false both on a philosophical level, but it's also just not it's not what scientists actually do. So if we look at what scientists do, we see it's very diverse. There are lots of different methods that scientists use. But that creates a new question. Well, if scientists use a lot of different methods, if there isn't one unique singular scientific method, then how or why is science reliable? And that was the question that I wanted to answer in this book. So what did we start off with? It's an interesting thing that many people think well, science, you know, used to just be individual scientists, typically men. But, but actually, that's not true. 
If we go back to the earliest days of what we could recognize as modern science, we find that science has always been collaborative. There have always been scientific societies, organizations like the Royal Society in England or the Academy des Sciences in France. These collaborative organizations are places where people would bring their ideas and their evidence to bear and present their claims in front of a group of peers, other scientists, other men of learning or savants, as they were sometimes referred to in France. And that was a crucial thing because it was in that process of bringing evidence into an audience of peers and having those colleagues look at the evidence, debate the claims, argue about them. That's where we see the emergence of what I would say is, in fact, science. And that's the piece that, as historians, we can identify as the one consistent thing that we can follow all the way back to the 17th century. So... I think I'll ask you the question that is the title of the book. How then can we trust science? Right. Well, so the question why trust science came out of a public lecture that I gave many years ago. For many years, I've been lecturing on the history of climate science. And so one time I gave a lecture, it was a very finely crafted lecture with lots of good slides and lots of telling detail. And at the end of it, a man stood up, put his fists on his hips and said, well, that's all very well and good, professor, but why should we trust the science? And I stood there for a moment. I thought, well, that's a good question. Fair enough. So this book is an attempt to answer that question. And the short version is it's not because of a unique scientific method. And it's not because of who scientists are as individuals. It's not because they're particularly smart or particularly moral or anything like that. Maybe they are. Maybe they aren't. But it's because scientists have means of evaluating claims, of vetting claims, and subjecting those claims to critical scrutiny. And it's that collective or social process of critical scrutiny, which I argue is the thing that yields reliable knowledge. So you give a good analogy in the book about how we decide we can trust a plumber, mm. and that maybe we could use the same sort of criteria for evaluating whether or not we should trust a scientist. And that sort of resonated with me. It really made sense. So can you tell us that analogy? Sure. Well, I'm glad it resonated because one of the things I try to do in this book, of course, is to think about examples from ordinary life that we're all familiar with. Because one of the problems of science is that there's this mystification of science, and that can be very alienating. It can make science seem like something we can't understand. So if we think about it, there are many people in our lives whose expertise we trust. So whether it's your plumber, your dentist, your car mechanic, well, we'll get back to the plumber, right? Because that's an example almost all of us have had. Why do we trust a plumber to do our plumbing? It's because we know the plumber has specialized training. We know he or she has specialized tools. And hopefully, if it's a decent plumber, has experience doing the job that needs to be done. So what I'm arguing is that scientists are the plumbers of knowledge, right? <laughs> These are the people who in our society have the training, the expertise, and the experience to answer questions about the natural world. Now, I'm not saying we should trust them blindly. So just as with a plumber, you would ask friends for advice, you would check the reputation, maybe go online and read the reviews. So we do judge people by their track records. And in the case of science, if we judge science by its track record, we see that the track record is very, very good. So what do we do in instances where science was wrong? So the question of track record, of course, invites us to look more closely at the track record of science. And so in the book, I argue that if we do that, we actually see that the track record of science is amazingly good. The cases where we can identify 
scientists, trained expert scientists going wrong are actually not that common, but it's very telling to look at them in detail. So in the second chapter in the book, that's what I do. And what we find in these cases that I look at here is that for the most part, what we discover is that actually there wasn't a scientific consensus, that in these cases, there actually was informed debate and dissent even at the time. My favorite example in the case is this story of the limited energy theory. Yes. And this was a, a case that a student of mine, Kate Bateman, wrote her master's degree on many years ago. So the limited energy theory is an amazing story. I really wish some filmmaker would call me and we could make a movie about this because it's such a great story. And almost no one knows about it. In the late 19th century, a physician here at Harvard, a professor of medicine, Edward Clark, wrote a book called Sex and Education. And in this book, he claimed that if women were educated, and particularly if they were subject to the rigors of higher education, that their reproductive organs would shrink and they would become infertile. You're smiling. The audience can't see. You're smiling. Right. I mean, so in hindsight, from the perspective of today, the obvious sexism and gender bias of this is pretty clear to us, but it wasn't obvious and clear to everyone in the late 19th century. The book was very successful. It was a bestseller, went through multiple editions, and it was so successful that women who were involved in pioneering higher education at that time, because this is the time when many women's colleges were founded in America, Smith, Vassar, Radcliffe, Bryn Mawr, the women who were involved in these colleges had to fight against a widespread popular belief that this theory was correct. And it was presented as a deduction from scientific theory, specifically from conservation of energy. So most of us know, if you remember any of your high school science, conservation of energy says that in any closed system, there's a finite amount of energy. So if we use energy for one thing, like getting educated, we have less energy for something else, like reproduction. But looking back, there's an obvious flaw in this theory, which is, well, if that's true, why doesn't it apply to men? <laughs> and particularly, Dr. Clark insisted that women's uterus would shrink. But he never asked the question, well, what part of men's anatomy would shrink? So there's a kind of obvious asymmetry in this. But nevertheless, it could have been the case that all scientists accepted this theory, in which case we would have to say, well, here's an example of scientists saying something that in hindsight we would think is ridiculous and obviously biased. But the fact is scientists didn't all think that. There were many people who objected at the time, including an important woman physician, Mary Putnam Jacoby. Mary Putnam Jacoby pointed out many of the obvious flaws in this theory, including that his sample size was tiny, seven patients, and a whole lot of other mistakes as well, a whole lot of other methodological so problems. Maybe this is a naive question, but were they able to look at no. A, a uterus and see if it was in fact smaller? Correct, exactly. So one of the methodological problems of this theory is that in effect what he was doing was using the hypothetical deductive model, which many people think of as being the scientific method. He had a hypothesis deriving from conservation of energy. He deduces a consequence, which is that women's reproductive organs would shrink. But if you're really going to follow the hypothetical deductive model, then you have to test to see whether that hypothesis is true, and he never did. He had no empirical evidence to support the claim that the uterus would shrink. So it was a very small sample, it was a biased sample, and he had no independent confirmation of the central claim. You know what's really interesting about that, though, is when you read one of the other case studies, the birth control one, mm. where there was so much information from women who were 
experiencing depression from taking the birth control pills, but yet the mountains of stories that women were telling weren't really taken into account. Right. So one of the important lessons of this, two of my cases involve the discounting of the views or evidence from women. And so in the first case, the limited energy theory, we have a woman physician pointing out these obvious large methodological mistakes in Clark's work. But for some reason, it took a woman to do that, even though one might have thought that an intelligent man could have seen those errors as well. In the second case, which is the contraceptive pill, there we have large amounts of evidence that the contraceptive pill was in fact causing depression in women who were taking it. But that evidence was discounted by predominantly male physicians who did not consider the evidence from patients, patients self-reporting, to be reliable. So there's two lessons I draw from that. One of the arguments I make is that evidence comes in many different forms. And sometimes evidence is not in the form that you would like to have. So physicians or biomedical researchers, they would prefer to have double-blind clinical trials. Just just tell us what a double-blind trial is. Sure. A double-blind trial means, let's say I have a new drug and I want to compare it to an existing drug or to a placebo. I take two groups of people who hopefully are similar in all other respects. One group gets the new drug, the other gets the old drug or the placebo. But they don't know which one they're getting. So there can't be sort of wishful thinking bias effects. And moreover, the person giving them the drug doesn't know either because we know from lots of research that if I know who's getting which, I might subtly, there might be subtle cues that people would pick up on. So the person giving the drug doesn't know the person receiving the drug. If you can do it, that's a very good thing to do because we know psychological bias is real and in some cases can be a very large effect. But you can't always do a double-blind trial. If a woman is taking the birth control pill, she has to know that, right? So you can't do a double-blind trial. Similarly, nutrition. You can't do double-blind trials of nutrition because people know what they're putting in their mouths. So if you can't do a double-blind trial, it doesn't mean that you throw up your hands and say, well, we're just completely ignorant. No, there are other things you can rely on. And they may not be ideal, but they still might be useful. And so in this case, I argue that the women self-reports their own experience of this drug should have been taken as important information, possibly imperfect, but not nothing. And instead, the vast majority of physicians, scientists discounted this evidence and kept insisting that the pill was safe, kept insisting that it did not cause mental health effects, even though we now know beyond any reasonable doubt that, in fact, it does. So that's a case for arguing for a certain kind of open-mindedness about evidence and not succumbing to what I call methodological fetishism, to say that if I can't have it exactly this way, then I don't want it at all, or if it's not a double-blind clinical trial, then I just discount it completely. And that issue comes up in one of my other examples, which is the dental floss case. So we saw not that long ago, some listeners may remember, there was a lot of attention in the mass media to the claim that dental floss was no use. But the great dental floss scam, uh, scam, right? right. The military industrial dental floss complex, right? (laughs) Right. So in that case, again, we actually had a lot of evidence about the efficacy of dental floss, but again, not in a double-blind trial because obviously you know if you're flossing or not. But the reporters who reported on it claimed that there was no evidence or, no quote, no good evidence. But what they were missing was the idea that Okay, maybe it wasn't the best possible evidence, but it's still evidence. And I I did notice that you maybe were 
advocating for professional flossers <laughs> that could come in and help people floss their teeth properly. Well, right, because one of the things you learn in science is often the devil's in the details. And so it turns out one of the reasons why dental flossing is confusing is because it's what dentists call a technique-sensitive intervention, which means it depends on how well you do it. And it turns out a lot of us don't floss very well. We don't take enough time. And, and we lie about it. And we lie about it. We're not honest. We claim we're flossing when we're not. Um, and also children, for flossing to be most effective, you want to start young because it's children who tend to get the most cavities. And children often don't do it right just because their hands are small. They don't have good dexterity. But in one study where they actually had professional dental hygienists flossing the teeth of children, they saw dramatic positive effects. So I say it's slightly tongue-in-cheek, but not entirely. What this tells us is that how you do something is often as important as whether or not you do it. So, yes, I imagine a world where next to Starbucks there could be like a little dental flossing bar where you could just pop in and for five bucks have a quick flossing, and we would have much better dental health. We'll be back in a minute with the second half of our interview. The Got Science podcast is brought to you by the Union of Concerned Scientists. More at gotsciencepodcast.org. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, PRX, SoundCloud, and all the usual podcast outlets. For a transcript or links to additional resources from this episode and a full bio of our guest, head over to gotsciencepodcast.org. Now let's get back to our interview. So what is the role of diversity in science? Because the examples that we just talked about, obviously, as a woman, those examples might lead, lead me to not be as trusting of science. And I think um, one of your other examples brings into question people of color with the eugenics example. So why should I, as a woman or a person of color, trust science? one of the things you have a right to ask is, is this community diverse? Because if it turns out that the scientific community is all white men, then as a woman or a person of color, you might actually have a right to be a little skeptical and to look closely and not just assume that the finding is robust. But if you see that the community is diverse, if there's good evidence that people have really had a chance to speak freely, that the processes of critical interrogation have really been taking place, then, then yes, we should trust science. And the good thing about that, in my opinion, is those are questions we can ask. So, for example, I deal a lot with climate science. There are people who are skeptical of climate science, but they could take my model and they could say, all right, well, let's look at the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Is it diverse? Are there men and women? Are there people from all across the world, people from rich countries and poor countries? Have they looked at this problem from many different angles? Have they collected many different kinds of evidence? So it actually gives you a set of criteria that you can apply in any case, whether it's climate change, vaccinations, evolution. And so my argument is, in a way, it's an empowering argument for citizens. It's giving us, in a way, a kind of checklist that we could use as ordinary people to say, okay, I'm going to ask these questions and I have a right to ask these questions. But if the answer is yes, they are diverse, they have looked at it from many different angles, then I should say, okay, then I'm probably justified to trust them. And it doesn't mean that science is perfect. It doesn't mean that there won't be cases where for whatever reason we learn in the future that things are different. But it means that in a given moment, this is probably the best we can do. 
Well, you set me up for my next question here perfectly. So, Naomi, if I asked you to create a handy card for me that would fit in my wallet, kind of like Seafood Watch, where you can pull it out and see what kind of seafood you should eat, and it had bullet points on it that would remind me what to keep in mind when deciding if the science is trustworthy, what would you put on that list? Number one, is the scientific community diverse? So the community of experts involved in this isn't diverse. That, to me, is the single most important thing. Second, have they looked at this problem from a number of different angles? Have they collected data, different kinds of data, and have different groups of people been involved, independent groups of people involved in collecting that data? And then the third thing I would say is, has this work been going on for a bit of time? Because the other thing we've learned through our research is that it does take time for scientists to sort out complicated things. Some of the issues that I've looked at were debated for 10, 20, 30 years before the scientific community came to agreement. So if something is a very new question, then I think we're right to possibly withhold judgment. And the fourth thing is consensus. Is there general agreement now among the scientific community on this issue, or is there still significant dissent within the scientific community? And that's a crucial modifier, because there'll always be people outside the community who are disagreeing because their financial interests are threatened or their ideology is threatened. But if scientists, people inside the scientific community, are raising questions, then that's something we should listen to. But if scientists have come to agreement and there is a consensus, then that's telling us that, again, it may not be perfect, but it's probably the best information we have to hand right now. The dental floss example that you use and the looming climate crisis, it makes me want to end with Pascal's wager. Mm -hmm. So can you tell our listeners what that is? And then I was hoping you might read a short excerpt from the book. Pascal was an important French philosopher and mathematician who several centuries ago raised the question, should we believe in God or not? And as a scientist, he wanted to try to come up with a scientific proof for the existence of God. And after many years and much thought on this issue, he concluded that that was not possible. But what you could do was you could think about it in probabilistic terms. And he came up with a concept that has come to be known as Pascal's wager. He argued, well, think of it this way. If I believe in God and it turns out there is no God, there's really not much harm done there. But if I choose not to believe in God and God really does exist, then I'm in deep, deep trouble and I'm going to burn in hell for eternity. So it's obvious if you think of it from a rational, logical, probabilistic standpoint that we must believe in God and hope for the best. So that notion of Pascal's wager can be applied to any problem, including the problem of climate change. And so in the book, I come to a conclusion about how we can apply this to questions about our own decision-making, whether it's dental floss, vaccination, or acting on climate change. And so I write, no matter how well-established scientific knowledge is, no matter how strong the expert consensus, there will always be residual uncertainty. For this reason, if our scientific knowledge is being challenged, for whatever reason, we might take a lead from Pascal and ask, what are the relative risks of ignoring scientific claims that turn out to be true versus acting on claims that turn out to be false. The risks of not flossing are real, but not inordinate. The risks of not acting on the scientific evidence of climate change are inordinate. Well, thank you, Naomi, for joining me. I really enjoyed the book, and I'm, I'm hoping that all of our listeners will pick up a copy and read it because it's 
really accessible to the average person like me. Thank you. Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. Well, that's it for this episode of the Got Science podcast. Got Science is made possible by the 130,000 members of UCS, and especially our partners for the Earth, the 12,000 supporters who make monthly contributions to stand up for science. Learn more at ucsusa.org partners. Special thanks to Professor Naomi Oreskes. Our four-part series on climate accountability was brought to you by Katie Love. Editing and music by Brian Middleton. Additional editing by Omari Spears. Research and writing by Pamela Wirth and Jiayu Liang. Our executive producer is Rich Hayes, and I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. Come find us on Twitter at GotScienceUCS. Thanks. Stay safe and see you next time.